This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Welcome to Line Up Online from It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw with Eric Flickinger. This is our opportunity to answer your Bible questions. If you have Bible questions, get them to us by emailing us at lineuponline at iiw.org and we'll do our best to give you a Bible answer for your Bible questions. Eric, welcome. Good to have you here. It's good to be here. We've got a bunch more Bible questions today. Well, let's plow through. Where do you want us to start? All right, let's start with this one from Roberta. And Roberta asks the question, isn't casting lots the same as gambling? Oh, okay, no. But I understand what you mean. In a certain sense, but no. It deals with chance, and it deals with, one would hope, random outcomes. Gambling, on the other hand, involves uh, investing of or the squandering of money. Our money belongs to God. We should not squander it. Uh, gambling is purely chance where you're not really looking for guidance. You're not really looking for a positive outcome. It's just really sort of a, a pleasure, uh, hedonism, self-centeredness. Don't mean to come on too strong, but I think you understand the point. We get instances of casting lots in the Bible. There's a very famous one in Matthew chapter 27 where it says, And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. So what was this? They take something like sticks or stones that were marked. It was a whole lot like rolling a dice, and it might be agreed the stone with the circle on, of that one is closest to the mark, or if that one turns over, then we go this way or that way, or you get it or I get it. In the Bible, they cast lots to determine sort of random outcomes, which, which way they should go where there's no clear direction giving, given, which goat should be used as a scapegoat, how the land should be divided. This is when there was no rule for doing these things, and any old way it works out is okay, just as long as it works randomly, and I don't choose the best land, and you don't commit that poor unfortunate goat. Let it be a matter of chance. Gambling, Eric, really, do you think so? I think it's a little different animal. Yeah, altogether different animal. So this was, it wasn't a game of chance. There wasn't money riding on it. It was a way to get a result that was seen to be random and not influenced by any person determining the outcome. Hey, good question, and I appreciate it. And our next question is, well, this is a deep question. Why does the sanctuary in heaven need to be cleansed if sin doesn't exist there, the question comes from Darren. Darren, thanks for your question. Eric, I'll, uh, I'll duck this. All right. Won't duck it, but I'll pass it on to you. It's a good question. I think what uh, Darren is referring to here is a passage in Daniel chapter 8 and verse number 14. In Daniel 8 verse 14, it says, and this is the angel speaking to Daniel or Daniel recording what the angel says. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Or in the King James, it says, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, this cleansing of the sanctuary that's described here in, in Daniel chapter 8 is a description of, of not the earthly sanctuary, because in the time that this would be fulfilled, 
it would have to apply to the heavenly sanctuary. There's an interesting Hebrew word that is used here to describe this cleansing of the sanctuary, and it's the Hebrew word nitzdak. It's the only time that it's used anywhere in the Old Testament, but it has several different uh, definitions, if you will. Uh, nitzdak could mean cleansing. It could mean restoring to righteousness or purity after defilement. It could also mean emerging victorious. So when you take a look at what has happened in Christ's priestly ministry uh, in heaven, much of what he's doing today has been misrepresented. His ministry has been trampled underfoot by a lot of, I guess we'd say, well-meaning Christians who are teaching things contrary to Christ's genuine ministry. Uh, In a nutshell, what we have going on today is a false system of Christianity that is misrepresenting Christ. It has a false sacrifice. Uh, We might refer to that as the mass. There's false forgiveness of sins coming through priests, a false head of the church, a false gospel, a false method of salvation. So for many years, Christ's ministry has been trampled underfoot. But there is a time coming when the Bible says that the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. It's going to be restored to righteousness after defilement. It's going to, be, it's going to emerge victorious. Mm-hmm. And so that cleansing of the sanctuary, uh, it has begun already, but it is going to continue for quite some time yet. Uh, Jesus hasn't come back yet, and there's still a little cleaning up that needs to happen. And we thank God for judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary and ultimately the blotting out of our sins that throughout eternity, sin will never exist again. Thank God for that. Good one. I appreciate the question, Darren. Here's a question from Jonathan, Eric. Can you explain or talk about the death of Moses? Uh, Moses died. We read about that in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 34 talks about Moses' death. But did Moses stay dead? I think the answer is no. Yeah. Let's look at what happened here back in Deuteronomy 34. I'll get that. And you mentioned it was right around verse 6. It's fascinating what the Bible says here. Uh, Moses committed the terrible sin, really. He was impatient and he said, here ye now, here now you rebels, must, must I fetch water out of this rock or must we fetch water? And he lost his patience and he really kind of assumed the role of God, posturing that it was him, Moses, who was getting the water out of the rock when really it absolutely wasn't. And God said to him, you can't go into the promised land. Instead, you're going to die. Verse 6 And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. But no man knows of his sepulcher unto this day. Moses died at 120 years of age. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. Okay, so he died and he was buried. Did he stay buried? He didn't stay buried. In fact, when you take a look over at the book of Jude, Jude verse number 9. Of course, Jude only has one chapter, so it's by default chapter 1. Jude verse 9 says this. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So there's a a contention over Moses. Should he be raised? Should he not be raised? We know that he was raised. Yeah, we know that he was raised because in Matthew chapter 17 on the mountain of transfiguration, it says in verse 3, and behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, Elijah, talking with them, Peter said, oh, it'd be good to make three tabernacles, Lord, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What was Moses doing? Appearing there on the mountainside. He was there because he had been taken to heaven. And he appeared with Jesus along with Elijah, as the Bible tells us, 
to discuss his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They were speaking to Jesus about his impending crucifixion, and it would seem Elijah was there encouraging Jesus by saying, through your death, there will be people like me who will be saved without seeing death. Moses, on the other hand, would be saying, there'll be people like me who have died and will be raised from the dead and saved because of what you do on the cross. Moses died, Moses was buried, Moses was raised. He appeared on the mountain of transfiguration. And of course, as far as we can tell, he's in heaven uh, while we meet together right now. Good question, what's next? Our next question comes from Gita. And Gita asks, where do you go immediately after taking your last breath? Let me tell you, Gita, to the mortuary or to the, well, to the funeral parlor or something very similar. That's where you go. Or, I mean, who knows? There are a number of ways of disposing of bodies where you don't go right away. Uh, We don't have a whole lot of time, so I might as well just go right for the jugular here. Where you don't go is straight to heaven or straight to hell. That's a myth that has been pressed upon the Christian church. It's really unfortunate that it has. It's not correct Bible teaching. The Bible makes clear what happens to those who pass away. Eric. Let's look at what Jesus himself had to say in the book of John. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says this. He says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So Jesus says, when you die, you're going to go into the grave, but eventually you are going to come up again. And he talks about here the resurrection of life. What's the resurrection of life like? It's wonderful. We've never experienced it, but we will. Think about this. If a person died and went straight to heaven, there would be no need for a resurrection. Wouldn't need one. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. There are lots of Christians who go through life and they say, they scratch their head and they say, oh, it doesn't seem to add up to me. I remember going to funerals, you know, the priest would say in the church, oh, we can just be so happy because Mr. Jones is in heaven right now. And then we'd go to the graveside and the same priest would say about the same Mr. Jones. And now we commit the body of Mr. Jones into the heart of the earth where he shall wait until the resurrection. And I'm thinking, hey, Father, you just preached the same man into two separate places. How do you do that? Here's what the Bible says about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll start in verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? What happened to Lazarus? What happened to Lazarus when Lazarus died? Where did Lazarus go? Lazarus spent four days in the tomb. In fact, his sister said he's been in there so long that he stinked, or I love the King James, he stinketh. Stinketh. That's the the appropriate way to say it. He stinketh. He stinketh. So for four days he... Stunketh. 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 But then Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of the tomb. The question I always love to ask is, what did Lazarus say when he came out of the tomb? Well, it's hot down there. Or it's beautiful up there. 
said absolutely nothing. And no report to Absolutely bring. nothing. If he had been in hell for four days burning, you know he would have said something uh, that smacked of thanks to Jesus. If he'd been in heaven for four days and Jesus called him back down, I don't think he would have considered Jesus his very best friend. What happened to Jesus? Jesus died. Where'd he go? He went to the tomb, Joseph's new tomb, and he waited there for some time. He died on Good Friday, and he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, and he spent the intervening time in the grave. So where does one go when one dies? One goes to the grave. The Bible's clear about this. It is. Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 15 that we just uh, read through, he also wrote 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And Paul says, For the Lord himself, that is Jesus, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So when Jesus comes back, those who have died in Christ don't go to heaven before us. We sure don't go before them. We all get to go up there together and Amen. see what Christ has prepared for us. That's right. And it's a wonderful and it's a hopeful teaching of the Bible. It's very clear. It's, it's not the teaching you hear everywhere. And I, c- I can't explain to you exactly why that is. But I know when you read the Bible, the Bible is really very, very clear. Read the Bible, Gita, stand on the Bible, trust the Bible. Where does a person go immediately after death? They go to sleep. And then Jesus comes back and wakes them up and takes them to heaven. He does that on the last day at the resurrection. Good one. Appreciate your question. We'll be back with more questions in a moment. But I want to tell you that if you would like to get a question to us, here's how you do it. Email us, lineuponline at iiw.org, lineuponline at iiw.org. And we'll be back with more Line Upon Line in just a moment. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kindness of people just like you. To support this international life-changing ministry, please call us now at 800-253-3000. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. Our number again is 800-253-3000, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, where we take your Bible questions and endeavor, if possible, to find a Bible answer for you. John, we have another question. Yeah, here it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you answer this question. Why is the devil called a man in Isaiah chapter 14? An interesting question. It comes from Samuel. All right. Well, Samuel, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 is a, has an interesting passage about, uh, about the adversary, about where, uh, where Satan came from and uh, what he's up to and has been up to. And we take a look at verse number 13. Actually, let's look at verse number 12. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. It's often been said that that Satan or Lucifer had an eye problem. I, I, I. I think we see that eye problem here. Yeah. But then we take a look at verse number 15 and verse 16. It says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, 
who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of its prisoners, and so forth. So, is he a man? Well, we've got a lot of different descriptions in the Bible of Satan. This just happens to be one of them. All the way back in the book of Genesis, we see him as a serpent. We also take a look at him in the book of Revelation. He's pictured as a dragon. We see him described as Lucifer, which literally means the day star. He's described as Beelzebub, the Lord of Beelzebub. He's described as Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, or the Lord of Dung, which is not a very uh, pleasant description. No, but fitting. But every time that you see him described, it doesn't mean that he is literally a dragon, or literally a serpent, or literally a man, or literally the Lord of the Flies. These are descriptions of him. They help us to get a little clear picture of his character. You put them all together. You get a pretty good picture of who the devil is. You do. And back there in Isaiah chapter 14, you you see the primary application of that passage is to the king of Babylon. And some of those verses do double duty and talk about Satan as well. You find that through the Bible in, in, in various ways. So primarily king of Babylon, king of Babylon is a man. So here, those verses that apply to the devil, uh, he's in the, it's in the context of a man. But here's what I'm really interested in, Eric. This is, this is really powerful. You read Isaiah 14, verse 16 before. I'm going to read it again in case it just kind of passed you by. Isaiah 14, 16 says, speaking of the devil, they that see you shall narrowly look upon you and consider you saying, is this the man that made the earth to tremble that did shake kingdoms? This seems it's way down in the end of time, shortly before the destruction of the wicked. And people look at the devil and say, is this it? Is this the man? And I really believe that if we had the opportunity to see visibly how puny the devil is, even though it certainly is very powerful, and then compare that with the enormous power of God, who is unfathomably powerful, we would say, what are we doing fooling around with sin? What are we doing letting ourselves get pushed around by this tiny puny devil when the arm of omnipotence is stretched out towards us, when we can be safe and saved and victorious and blessed. It's interesting, one day we'll look at the devil and say, really, is that it? If we learn to kind of think that way today and say, small cheese, but God is magnificent and vast, I think it would really impact our experience in a powerful way. Next question. I think it would. This question comes from Terence. And Terence asks the question, did God know that people would live shorter lives after eating meat? Do you think God knew what would happen? Or might it have just kind of taken him by surprise? Yes. From time to time, I expect God is just surprised. Boy, didn't expect that to happen. Never saw it coming. Goodness, what do we do now? Terence, it's a fun question. It's a good question. Did he know? Yes, he knew. He absolutely knew. And it was in a certain sense, in God's best interests for people to live shorter lives rather than longer lives, because these folks who were living the best part of a thousand years and were filled up with sin. I mean, how good could you be at sin if you lived for 900 odd years? So rather than give sin, as it were, an indefinite shelf life, God, what one of the purposes in this was to cap sin off at a much shorter time, which today is even shorter again. It is. Can you imagine what the... Can you imagine what this world would be like now if wicked people, like with the corruptest imaginations, just lived on and on and on, contributing society in a, to, to society in a corrupt way? Oh, we'd be in a mess. Yeah, we think it's bad now. It would be so much worse. Yeah, no, nothing catches God by surprise. 
Undoubtedly, Terence, he saw the end result of what took place here. Thank you for your question. I'll go on for you. Wallace asks, did Jesus ever laugh? Did Jesus ever laugh? Can you picture Jesus watching a baby giggle or watching a couple of puppy dogs playing one with another? Do you think that he looked on that scene with com- a completely passive face? You can imagine him folding his arms and looking, looking as though I am not amused. Can you imagine that? That's far from the picture that we have of Jesus. Now, sometimes people are a little bit, well, we see in the book of Isaiah chapter 53 that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sure, but here we're really dealing with that in the context of the crucifixion. Oh, you'd probably be sorrowful too if you were headed that direction. You'd be well and truly acquainted with grief because life was very difficult for Jesus in many ways. But I mean, this is the same Jesus who saw a sunrise and said, wow, that is fantastic. And saw, saw somebody catch a fish and can you imagine Peter catches a fish and then falls out of the boat into the water and Jesus, what did Jesus, what did Jesus do? Of course he laughed. He laughed along with his friends and he enjoyed happy moments and he enjoyed birthday celebrations and he went to wedding feasts. Jesus was no stranger to joy. You can be sure of that. As a matter of fact, in some of Jesus' teaching, so, so Jesus is teaching when he said, hey, before you take the little thing out of your friend's eye, take the plank out of your eye. That's funny. It's tough to do that with a straight face. No, I don't think Jesus was a comedian. I don't think he taught, uh, spent his time down at the local comedy club doing improv for cheap laughs. That wasn't Jesus. But Jesus derived joy from those things that gave joy. And he also shared joy and spread joy. And he wasn't, based on what we see in the Bible, afraid to look on the lighter side of life. Keep in mind that people were drawn to Jesus. Very rarely are people drawn to someone who is morose. There was a joy that exuded from Jesus, and people, even children, especially children, were drawn to that. Amen. Jesus does not mind you experiencing joy, and he joys along with you. You know, again, again, cheap laughs and stupidity and all of that is probably not Jesus' thing. But fun, joy, smiles, laughter... Absolutely. We have no reason to believe other than that. Eric, I have a question for you. And the question comes from Jean-Paul. Is it okay to donate blood and organs? Is it okay? Well, the Bible doesn't speak specifically to donating blood and organs, but I think based on some other foundational truths of the Bible, we can probably extrapolate a little bit here safely. Um, If you're going to donate organs, for the most part, you should probably do that after you are deceased. Uh, amen. Unless it's a kidney because you have two and sometimes you can help somebody out with one. But otherwise, not while you're living. Blood, while you're alive, preferably. Yeah, best idea. Uh, keep in mind what happens when you die. Uh, when you die, your consciousness, your you cease to exist. Your body is just your body. You're not going to use it anymore. So if, uh, if your organs can help somebody else, is there something wrong with donating them? Can't see anything wrong with it. No, biblically. The Bible does say this, and this is fascinating, because virtually all of Christianity has simply lost sight of this. In the Jerusalem Council, they said, what are we going to put on the Gentiles, kind of to make sure that they're keeping all the rules that we want them to keep? And one of the things that the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 said was, make sure they don't eat blood that they don't eat blood. 
the Bible says that in the Old Testament, don't eat it. Now, I know there are some groups that say you, you, you shouldn't ever get a blood transfusion. We don't read that in the Bible. You, you, now, if you're going to get a blood transfusion orally, I would suggest that that's probably not the way to go. But having blood put into your veins, different matter for sure. That's life-saving. There's nothing morally or ethically inappropriate about that. As for eating blood, no. The Bible speaks very clearly against that. Donating organs is a fantastic thing to do. You can save lots and lots and lots of lives, relieve suffering, enhance people's existence. Again, we're clear on this. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt donate organs or blood, but it doesn't give us any reason at all to believe that a person should not. Now, this is a fantastic question that we have. And the question is from Jean, Jean with a J. She writes, can you help me find every promise found in the Bible? I think we can help, Gene. This may be a little longer program than we are accustomed to doing. Every promise in the Bible. All right, let's start in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Can you help me find every promise in the Bible? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start reading until we find promises. Let's go verse about. I'll start with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not a promise. No, I'll take verse number two. Verse two says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We're over two right now. We have not found a promise. Let's keep reading just a little bit more. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. How many verses is that that we've That's read? four that we've done we've, so far. We've not found any promises yet. Not quite yet. But they are there in the Bible. Somebody once calculated there are 3,573 promises in the Bible. I don't know how uh, he came to that, but it's good enough for me. Uh, we could read on, but Gene, we have an idea. I read verse 1, Eric read verse 2, I read verse 3, Eric read verse 4. How about you read from here, and you start in verse 5, and just keep on reading. They are there, and if you read all the way through the Bible, and it won't take you that long, you can get through it in a few months, reading a couple of chapters or three or four chapters a day, you will have at least encountered every promise in the Bible. And that seems to me to be the very best way for you to find them. So, so follow our example. I read, Eric read, I read, Eric read. You know what to do. You read, and you'll find them and they are wonderful. Write them down, mark them, highlight them, memorize them. Give me a promise that you especially like in the Bible. Jesus promises that he's making mansions for us. Amen. John 14, verses 1 through 3, that he has gone away and he will come again and That's receive us unto himself. Great Amen. promise. I'll go on for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a good one. I got another one for you. Uh, Psalm 32 and verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Wonderful promise. You got another one? Uh, Jesus says that he's going to cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Ah, we love that. The promises of God are fantastic. Fantastic. And they are many and they are in here and we should love them and believe them and claim them. When God has made you a promise, you can go to God and say, you've made me this promise. I claim this promise from you. I believe in this and I believe you'll do it for me. That's what we call faith. Claim the promises of God and watch God work in your life. Hey, that's all we have 
time for. Thank you for joining me today. Good to be here again. And thank you for joining us today with Eric Flickinger. I'm John Bradshaw. This has been Line Upon Line. To get your questions to us, email us, lineuponline at iiw.org. God bless you. Looking forward to seeing you again next time. <laughs>